Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 96 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be talking to one of the UK's most experienced journalists. Uh, we're going to be discussing Chamonix pre-love ski wear and going back to skis with Al. I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the ski podcast. I don't know if you've been following it, but the Tour de Suisse is a prelude to the Tour de France. That actually finished yesterday and Geraint Thomas became the first British winner of that. So uh, have a little look if you'd like to find out more, I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, my name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guest today. I'm delighted to welcome uh, from Chamonix, Claire Bernay. Hi, Claire. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm very well, thank you. Regular listeners will remember Claire has been on the uh, show before. But first time on the uh, show is ski journalist Neil English. Hi, Neil. How are you going? All good, thanks. All good, thanks, Ian. Excellent. We also have a uh, another first timer on the show, uh, Sally Warren from Hooski. Hi, Sally. Hi, Ian. Great to be on here. Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure. And uh, regular contributor, our equipment and kit expert, Al Morgan. Hi, Al. Hey, Ian. How are we doing? Very well. Now, we've got a big turnout today. I know what Al's answer is. Traditionally, I've always asked our guests uh, when you ski or uh, snowboarded last. But I think now we've kind of got through COVID and the lifts have been closed. I'm more interested in where you skied and snowboarded last. Let's start off with Claire. What about yourself? Where was it that you were last on snow? Well, you wouldn't believe it, Ian, but it was in Chamonix. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last time I skied was um, at Balm, and, and otherwise I did quite a bit of ski touring uh, during the winter as well. Excellent. Neil, what about yourself? When were you last on snow and where was uh, it? Well, my last 10 days of March, which were my last 10 days of this winter just gone were in Val d'Isere, La Plaine and then finished in Vila where as you know I partly live. Right that sounds like a good trip it was 10 days yeah, on the road it, was it? It was yeah was how was the snow at that time? Um, so a bit iffy it was before the big end of season snow which uh, I was a bit I was a bit mugged off that I had to return to England when I heard of all the end of season <laughs> snow falling everywhere but uh, I couldn't get back for it but hey ho there we go. Yeah. And Sally, what about yourself? Where were you skiing last? Well, mine's a bit of a sob story, actually, because in 2019, it's the last time I skied. 2020, it was cancelled. And then this year, um, I was all set to go to France. And unfortunately, I got COVID three days before leaving. Oh. So I was one of the unfortunate ones who couldn't go skiing because it was in March. Got my money back from the insurance company, who are fantastic. So the last time I went skiing in 2019, I stayed in um, next to Montreal Lake, down from Ardon on the Port de Soleil, which was amazing. And that's with the kids and uh, the family and some friends. I'm disappointed to hear that it's been such a long time. Hopefully, uh, the winter season 22-23 will work out uh, for you. Um, I'm hoping now, twice, Ian. We like that. Pent up demand, taking two holidays. Good for the uh, industry uh, overall. Uh, now, regular listeners will recall I was having a chat with Ian Brown in episode 94. And I thought I'd share a story uh, with you. We've all been enjoying probably the Jubilee, certainly the extra uh, days off. Um, he shared with me a story about uh, royals from the uh, British royal family skiing in the UK. Now, he made me swear that I didn't say who they were, but I can exclusively reveal that last winter, the royal family were skiing at the snow centre in Hemel Hempstead. Now, <laughs> skiing uh, does give you uh, quite a lot of uh, anonymity, and, and I think that's why celebs like it. You know, they can wear a helmet and goggles, etc., and they're hard to spot. But I can tell you that these royals inquired about booking the whole slope, whole of Hemel Hempstead, uh, but even that turned out to be out of their budget, because as uh, as Ian said to me, to uh, to book the whole place on a Saturday would just be uh, pretty expensive. But what they did for them, they turned up via a different entrance, 
Uh, they had all of their kit lined up for them. They kitted up and they just went out onto the slope and uh, skied. So the next time you are on the uh, slopes, even indoor in the UK, pay attention. You might have a member of the royal family uh, next to you. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask uh, my guest today. I wondered if uh, any of you have ever bumped into uh, a celebrity or a member of the royal family sort of trying to be anonymous on the uh, slopes. Uh, well, I have, yeah. As you, you may know, a certain former rugby playing royal comes to Vila fairly regularly as he's got a very good mate there who puts him up, so I'm, I'm given to understand. Um, I've seen him ski. I've seen him, sadly, not get a table at a restaurant that he was hoping for, but he didn't book, so he had to <laughs> go away. Um, but I have had a drink with him as well in uh, one of the uh, Apre ski bars called Larry Vey, which is a little cabin at the end of a run near the Eurotel. And he's a very nice chap. He was very amiable, talked, does a bit of uh, ski mountaineering as well. Wait, and just to clarify, we talk about Mike Tyndall here, right? Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah. I don't know of another former rugby playing royal. Excellent. Anyone else uh, come across any uh, celebs on the slopes? Um, well, I'm not 100% sure because, like you say, it's quite a good way to disguise yourself. And they did have a helmet and goggles on. But the presenter of QI and Bake Off, a certain Sandy, I'm oh, yeah. sure it was her. Well, it could well be her because actually one of my clients, uh, Ski Mojo, I happen to know that she got a Ski Mojo uh, from them. So she's definitely a skier. So probably you were you were right. Right. Got another item of news I, I wanted to uh, just uh, let listeners know about. The London Ski Festival or the London Ski Show, if you wanted to call it that, has just been cancelled, sadly. This was only 10 days after they announced the start of ticket sales. So they sent out this press release saying ticket sales were uh, on. And very shortly after that, they cancelled it. Now, the Birmingham uh, show, the National Snow Show, is definitely still going ahead on the 15th to 16th of October. Um, Al, I thought I'd start with you uh, about this. I wonder what you thought about that, because it's rather disappointing that the London show, which hasn't happened for three years now, I think, is not going to go ahead. Yeah, it was... A bit saddening because you know the, the, there was a few a few rumblings that they might do it last year. That didn't happen. Birmingham did go ahead and was relatively successful, which is great. Birmingham is still going ahead again for this coming season, so that's exciting. But it was actually you know looking like we may get that London show, that festival atmosphere in the capital, and I just think that would have been really great. So it's a real shame, you know, just not to have that all of the skiers coming together before the season. Neil, you are based in London when you're not out in Switzerland. Would you have been going along to the to the London ski festival? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very upset that it's not going ahead. I thought it would be a great thing, especially after all the coronavirus years and everything. It would have been a really good, strong bounce back for the industry. And uh, I'm sure everyone would have embraced it. And uh, I happen to be in Battersea, so that's where the last London <laughs> show was. So it was pretty convenient for me. And I went, I, the times it has been in Batsy, I've been there every day. Yeah, um, I just think it's a great shame. And on a personal note, um, my father, you may recall some 50 odd years ago, actually started the ski show in London. It was in the Westminster Horticultural Hall. Then it became the Daily Mail ski show in Olympia and Earl's Court for donkey's years before the Telegraph got hold of it. And so... Um, I always like there to be a show and I've worked there for many years as a kid and all that. So I hope it comes back in some form sooner or later. Yeah, I hope so too. That's really interesting because actually I, I was talking to my mum about uh, the ski show and she said that she went along. You, you said it was at the, the Royal Horticultural That's Society? Right. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a hall in Westminster. Yeah. It's called the Horticultural Halls and, uh, it's just around the, around the corner from Westminster, yeah. uh, then boys' school. Listening back to this, I realise that I should have pointed out earlier that Neil's father uh, was Sir David English, uh, a British journalist, and he was newspaper editor of the Daily Mail for over 20 years from 1971 to 1992 and clearly a great ski lover. Right. And and when um your 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 dad started it who uh, you know was, was it the Daily Mail show from the start? I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, because he wouldn't have been involved uh, without it and he set it up with an exhibition specialist which was kind of key to called Peter Anslow many many years ago. And uh, they kind of just took it on to strength to strength. And it did become a big festival, you, you may recall, you know, with the Peter Stuyvesant stunt team, 
almost hitting the kind of rafters in the Earl's Court. Terribly exciting, huge crowds applauding. I mean, I, I worked at the show uh, as well a whole number of years back in the uh, the time when it was a 10-day show that ran yeah. over uh, two weekends. Uh, bloody exhausting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Working at the show, but amazing that it would be on for 10 days. And, you know, uh, listeners probably... Uh, have heard me go on about this before it wasn't so long ago where you could uh you had that london show you had a birmingham show a manchester show uh there was also small shows in in brighton and southampton, southampton. there's one in uh, glasgow uh, yeah. as well and now you know we just have a uh, one which is a, a tremendous uh tremendous shame really um claire have you uh, exhibited before at the, uh, any of the ski shows in the uk oh yeah all of the ski shows <laughs> Yeah, we exhibited um, many times in London. A couple of years running, we had a pavilion there and we brought over all our resort partners and even the NBC, which is, is the microbrasserie of Chamonix, which I think you know, and they came yeah. over with their beer. Um, and um, the Midnight Art Gallery, which is now based in London. Uh, but we also exhibited in Manchester and uh, Birmingham and Glasgow. Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it is a great shame. And I, I'm, I'm a believer in you know, the rising tide floats all boats. And uh, to have that London show on uh, as well as the uh, Birmingham show would have been really good. But for whatever reason, they do say that they're going to uh, put it on again in 2023. So let's keep our fingers crossed that that uh, does happen. Another item of news. I'm delighted to report that the Travel Ski Express is back for next winter. Um, regular listeners will know I travelled on the inaugural service. Uh, there's a bonus episode about that and a video uh, out there. There is a slight change from last year, which is instead of doing the overnight direct from London to the Tarantes on the Friday night, they're now changing that. So the travel out will be in the day on the Saturday. You'll still be able to ski seven days and you'll come back at the end of the day on the Saturday, overnight, Saturday to Sunday, arriving back into St Pancras on the Sunday morning. And I think that overall that probably is better because it's quite hard to sleep in those upright seats. There aren't, uh, there's no couchettes or uh, anything like that. And so it gives you a chance to perhaps recover on the Sunday before you uh, get back to the UK. And they, they report that, you know, they did that on the basis of feedback from the, the different people who travelled out uh, this season. Let me uh, check. Uh, Neil, have you ever travelled out on the uh, train to the Alps before? I have, not on the Travel Ski Express in that format. Um, and I can imagine that having to kind of sit up would be pretty tough. I remember as kids long ago, there's three kids and I'm the youngest in my family. Mum and Dad used to put us on the train and they used to pick us up down in Geneva. Um, obviously, it wasn't then even the Eurostar or anything, but we used to go down to the Alps by train. They were a bit superstitious um, about sometimes they even flew to destinations separately as parents as well. But we loved it. The three kids, we had our own couchette and um, it was great adventure to start off our ski holiday. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, um, couchettes are definitely. Uh, I'm, the, I'm in favour of couchettes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, you know, the French are um, SNCF are uh, bringing back more overnight uh, services around uh, France coming in over the next few years. At the moment, there aren't so many. Uh, Claire, I was out in uh, uh, Chamonix back in May. I guess that was only a month ago. It feels like a very long time ago. Travelled out by train then. Have you have you travelled by train back and forth between the UK and France at all? Yes, I have, but it, it's not that straightforward. I must admit. I mean, it's um, it involves a change in uh, in uh, Paris, obviously, and then you have to change if you have a direct train in um, Saint Gervais Le Bain to get up to Chamonix. So, though, whilst we do have a, a railway station in resort, uh, things could be improved, and I hope, as you say, that we're going to get a better rail network. Uh, over the next few years. Although I have, um, when I came out, I did change uh, at Annecy uh, on the way through and then at Saint-Gervais. I have taken the direct train between Paris and Saint-Gervais and it's just not every day, is it, that train? No, it's only, 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 days a week. it's only at weekends and only at certain periods. And then there used to be the night train, which they knocked on the head but hopefully it's going to come back <laughs> um yeah i hope that that will come back as well uh for sure well it's good news that travel ski express is going to be uh, running again this winter regular listeners will know i'm a big fan of train travel reduce your uh, emissions and i've got to you know touch on the fact that um uh, i'm sure everybody knows um, in 
in in France, uh, they had their hottest uh, May ever on course for the uh, hottest uh, June uh, ever at the moment. You know, Val d'Isère unfortunately announced that they're not going to be opening their uh, glacier. Uh, this summer uh, for the first time in a very long time. However, there is skiing uh, going on and uh, we've got a few uh, snow reports. Uh, I've got uh, a report from uh, Alex, who's uh, reported for us several times before. Uh, Alex Armand uh, from Tip Top uh, Ski Coaching in Ladies Out, who's on the glacier there. Uh, Alex from 150 Days of Winter, who was out in team this weekend for their first day. And also we've got Jasmine Taylor, the uh, British telemarker, who was in episode uh, 94. She mentioned to us that she was heading out to Hotham in Australia, and she has sent us a snow report uh, from there as well. This is Alexandra Armand from Tip Top Ski Coaching in Leders Alp, uh, with an update on our snow conditions on the glacier here in Leders Alp. I've been skiing over the weekend, and whilst the snow is in currently very good condition, Uh, We don't have as much snow as we would like for this time of year due to a fairly dry winter and a very dry and warm springtime. The resorts are doing everything they can to make sure that the snow remains good, uh, but due to the quantity of bash snow, the opening dates have been amended and the glacier will close at the end of July. So if you would like to come skiing this summer, it would be recommended to come as early as possible. The glacier is open to the public uh, currently and will close on the 31st of July. Conditions in the morning are firm at the moment uh, with the clear evenings and temperatures are warm, so the snow is warming up fairly quickly in the mornings. Uh, The glacier stays open till 12.30 for the main slopes and 1 o'clock for the snow park. So up bright and early if hard packed snow is what you're after for carving, racing, etc. And a little bit later if you would prefer the snow to have softened just a little bit and become more like hero snow. We look forward to welcoming you onto the glacier this summer. And if anyone would like any further information, uh, I can be contacted via Tip Top Ski Coaching. Thank you. Hi, Ian. Alex from 150 Days of Winter on the second day of the summer ski season and I'm afraid to say the team glacier is not looking good. It's best summed up by a member of the team staff. After asking if I had seen the state of the snow, she perfectly summarised the situation. It's not good, but it's not bad. On exiting the funicular, the true extent of what a hot May and June can do to a glacier was revealed. The main piece from the top of the Grand Mop was 50 shades of grey. Completely unreadable. I mean unskiable. Even though the temperature on the glacier was below 10 degrees by 8am, the normally firm frozen piece were already soft and slushy. Of the runs that were open, crevasse holes were numerous and the sound of running water down the piece was all too noticeable. I'm sorry to sound like a pessimist, but if these conditions continue, the original July 31st closing date will most likely be June 31st. And even then, that's being optimistic. I must clarify, this isn't a global warming thing, it's just a bad snow year. The last time I saw it in this state was back in July 2015, and that was a month later than this year. So as I descend down to Borg, where the temperature is around 40 degrees, this is Alex from 150 Days of Winter signing off, and hoping you will come and visit my YouTube channel. Ciao. Hello, Ian and Ski Podcast listeners. Um, This is Jasmine Taylor here. Telemark skier. I'm currently in Hotham in Australia and the season is off to a fantastic start. I believe the best they've had in 22 years since 2000. Um, There's plenty of snow up here and many more lifts are open compared to to usual. Um, Yeah, it's really busy and we're now gearing up for the holidays um, where I'll be working ski instructor and a race coach so doing something a bit different this summer well winter um but yeah looks to be a great start and like i said the snow is amazing i don't know if you can hear but they're producing snow in the background because it's cold enough and um it's a nice sunny day so yeah wishing everybody a great summer from down under
So some interesting contrasts there between uh, the, the northern hemisphere where they're struggling a little bit for snow and the southern hemisphere where they've got record amounts of snow for the start of their uh, season. Just a note that the next episode is going to be a special on Australia and New Zealand. We have Paul Anderson from nzski.com and uh, Rachel uh, Oaks-Ash from uh, Snow's Best. And we'll be talking about Australia and New Zealand then. Now, as we near our 100th episode, I'd really like to know more about what you like and don't like about the uh, ski podcast. Our 2022 survey is now live. It only takes a couple of minutes. Uh, I would really appreciate your feedback. I've put a link into the show notes. And as an extra incentive, we have a couple of pairs of Atomic 4Q HD goggles to give away plus some other prizes, including beanies and buffs from Tyrol, uh, Ladies Out, Val d'Azur, etc. Especially uh, interested in what your thoughts are about the length of the show. Because typically we do about an hour episode, but, you know, would you prefer it shorter? Would you prefer it longer? We've had a lot of responses uh, so far. One thing I noticed is that of the people who've responded, 80% of uh, respondents are men. Uh, now, if you're a female listener... Get on there and fill out that uh, questionnaire, the uh, survey, and let us know. I'd really like to uh, to know that we're uh, uh, providing for a diverse audience. Right, Neil, I was doing a little bit of research uh, before uh, we came onto the air, and uh, I discovered that you've skied in over 400 ski resorts. That's pretty good going. Well, I wonder what age you started skiing. You mentioned taking the train to the Alps when you were younger. <laughs> yeah, well, I started age six when my, my mother actually decided that as a family of five, it would be a good thing to do. Um, I can remember her saying that we're all, I mean, much later in life, the reason for that was because on Spanish holidays and things like that, she felt that maybe the sun was going to our heads and made us fairly disagreeable young people. So she thought, let's try snow. And at the time, snow was expanding, um, you know, out of just skiing holidays for the elite and into um you know more mainstream so we drove out to the alps for the first three or four years in a big jaguar three kids in the back all saying you know are we nearly there yet and dover hasn't <laughs> even appeared so you know can we go to the loo all at different times so it took two full days to drive out no auto route back in those days so, uh, so that was all part of the adventure too yeah so started early yeah, and and then since then, uh, you know, I think uh, we actually met last week at a different event. You mentioned to me that you did That's a ski right. season with uh, with Nielsen. What were you doing for them? I was uh, what they called ski guide at that time, and then obviously with all the the ramifications of that and problems with ski schools and things, they had to change their that that kind of name. Um, but I did two, maybe even three seasons with Nielsen. Yeah, it was great. You had to be a qualified ski instructor at the time to get a ski guide job with Nielsen. And then you just put on different programs and advertised it during the week, whatever resorts you did. And I just loved skiing with people. I didn't really teach, but obviously the French ski school used to think that maybe we were, but we weren't. Yeah, I mean, I think the, these days, uh, you know, ski guiding uh, doesn't exist as far as something that's provided by tour operators. No. I was also a ski guide for Bladen Lines, uh, you know, at a similar time. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. I'm also, uh, you might say, like a people person. I love chatting to people. Absolutely. Sometimes it was a little frustrating when there was perfect powder uh, oh. you know, out on the hills and you had to go skiing with clients and the rest of your friends could yeah. just go and uh, tackle you off piece. It, 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 can, it can be frustrating. I, I, when I did my season in Valmorel for Nielsen, I, I got a really good gig going with the guys I met from Val Grisson. She ran heli skiing days. And uh, I would always offer on the coach, you know, first day, just fresh off the plane, any good skiers, you know, interested in it, please let me know straight away. And I got a fairly good... Uh, got a fairly good rate for them and my my seat was always paid for by four three or four other people and i probably we got about 10 weeks of that which was brilliant and we used that... to get up really early in the morning drive them down there and i used to have to hire another guide to do the nielsen guiding and give him my uniform and and nielsen never knew anything about that sorry nielsen <laughs> many changes of management since then so there we are and, you know, how did you segue into journalism from that? Um, well, I didn't really. I had uh, about an eight-year career in advertising agencies, um, not knowing what I was really wanting to do with my life. Um, but it was great fun. My brother-in-law kind of convinced me he was a creative director in another agency and said, you'll be good. Uh, you'll be a good account man. You need a lot of bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> and you uh, just need to love people and you'll be good with the clients. 
So I kind of got a couple of interviews and uh, I, I did that for eight years and it was great. And it was when that changed that I went into journalism. They had a bit of a revolution in advertising agencies and it all got a little bit too uh, serious and uh, unpleasant and lots of jobs were going. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll finally listen to dad and try journalism. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of it. I went to work on the Leicester Mercury and then at Press Association and uh, eventually into travel writing when I discovered what a good life people could have doing that instead of doorstepping politicians and things like that. <laughs> so, uh, right, exactly. Travel writing being the, the way to go. And is that how you managed to accumulate such a large number of resorts that you visited? Um, mostly, yeah. I did do an awful lot um, on my own before I got that because I didn't really go into kind of full-time travel writing till maybe... 35 36 but i'd done an awful lot of skiing with my friends and and family uh up up until then yeah we it was our annual family holiday so all, we all became pretty pretty good skiers and all very keen so we're always looking for, uh, for i love vila intensely but it is a fairly small area and i just wanted to keep keep going out and discovering more so we did and i just got that circuit of people that love skiing you know and you mentioned uh, uh, Vilar. So you share your time between the UK and uh, uh, with uh, Vilar, which is in uh, the Valais in Switzerland. You, you mentioned it's quite it's small. In the, it's in the Vaux canton, just, just oh, excuse me. To, to Valais, yeah. It's in, in uh, Vaux. What's yeah. it like as a resort? Um, I really like it. It's, uh, it's, it's not for everybody because it is kind of boutique compared to something like, you know, the Four Valleys, Verbier and, and uh, other things. If you really like the huge, huge resorts, the Trois Valais, the Port de Soleil, the Chamonix, etc. Um, but it is, um, it's got its own pace. It's an authentic year round village. Um, it's stunning from wherever you happen to be. Um, and I've never tired of it skiing and, uh, I must be in my 54th year there now. So that's pretty good. Um, but, you know, once you know a place inside out, um, you can always find places to ski where no one else is going to go. Right. Well, I know you're the expert on it because I did notice that uh, last winter, uh, Matt Hancock, who uh, sort of uh, achieved uh, his fame perhaps for the wrong reasons, escaped <laughs> to uh, Vilar. And uh, I think uh, the Telegraph were on the uh, phone to you straight away asking for inside information as you're, you're the man. Did you did you manage to track him down? Um, I did. I wasn't actually there at the time, but through 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 friends and things like that, I managed to track him down. And the Telegraph had got hold of a picture that someone had taken on their phone and he was leaving some building with a couple of other people and... That that helps me a lot because I knew who those other people were and I knew the bar that they were coming out of. So I said, yeah, I'd help them, but I wouldn't reveal his close friends and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I managed to do a little piece of the Telegraph on Hancock and his new squeeze in Vila. Mm, exactly. I mean, I'm not sure he's the biggest celebrity. You mentioned Mike Tindall. No who who uh, goes there on a regular basis. I also think I'm right in saying that um, it's kind of attracted sort of Formula One race drivers as well, because I, I recall historically, and you tell me if this is right or not, Jacques Villeneuve uh, used to have a place there. I think he still does, actually. Um, yeah, and, uh, and yeah, Formula One did go there because there was a thing called uh, set up by the wife of Craig Pollock, who ended up being mentor and Formula One manager of Jacques Villeneuve. Um, he was head of the BAT Formula One team, for anybody who knows that. And uh, she just ran this 24-hour charity race, and we all had to ski for 24 hours, and it, it, it raised an awful lot of money for for disadvantaged and uh, sick children, including great things like Great Ormond St uh, Street and um, great, great Ormond Street Hospital. And uh, so it attracted people. So, yeah, we had um, Jackie, Jackie Stewart as well and his... Um, they have a chalet there still, I think, and his son Paul's regulars there. They were part of it. Um, David Coulthard had a chalet there for a long time, and they always took part in this race, so it attracted lots of other people. And lots of people tried to raise money for months beforehand, before it all took place. And it was a great show event, too. I'm very sad that it doesn't continue now. But, yeah, racing drivers galore. Right. Uh, interesting. I mean, I, I know that racing drivers have always really enjoyed uh, skiing. I think people are probably very familiar with uh, Michael Schumacher, but also in uh, Maribel, <laughs> I remember being told, oh, that's Alan Prost's chalet. 
uh, over there. And yeah. you know, watch out for this small guy on a on a snowboard, uh, you know, scooting around the place. Um, I guess uh, they just like going fast, right? I, I think so. Um, Damon Hill also took part in that. Came to Vila a couple of times, and he's become a pretty sharp skier. He's done some done some racing in other events that you you might know about, which are kind of recreational events too. He's kind of good skier, yeah. I shared a chairlift with uh, Damon Hill at yeah. the city championships a few years back that's it yeah and, uh yeah he was a, a very decent skier and in fact my dad was kind of more excited <laughs> hearing <laughs> that i just like sat next to him than you know anything else about all the other places that i've been skiing <laughs> but that's really interesting and you tend to spend the winter out there do you and the summer over here um yeah it's it's mixing up a bit now because i'm not a swiss resident i never kind of put my papers out there i might do that depending on what what happens after Brexit and Schengen, because now I'm, you know, subject to the 90 out of 180 day rule and that rolling arrangement. So mixing it up more. Um, and I love the summers out there too. I really do. It's, it, um, I wouldn't say it comes into its own, but it's a very special place in summer too. Well, I mean, I love the mountains in summer and that that's really interesting to hear about that. And also your uh, career in the industry. That's brilliant, uh, uh, Neil. Um, I'm going to um, move on to Claire now. Uh, Claire, we, you know, I came out to uh, Chamonix uh, last month uh, and I do enjoy it in summer. There was still quite a lot of snow around when I went for my uh, hikes. But I think you've just had your um, film festival in uh, Chamonix. How was that? Yes, it was great. It was uh, very successful. So it's the second edition. Um, there were 35 films in competition. Um, a very uh, uh, good jury with uh, Conrad Anker, the American mountaineer, who's, uh, who's pretty famous, uh, who was the patron of the festival. Um, and then there were workshops in the mountains, bivouacs and uh, uh, guided outings. Um, and so it went very well. Were, were they all kind of adventure films then? They weren't uh, like Hollywood releases. Oh, God, no, it's all <laughs> mountain films. The theme of the festival is uh, is um, adventure, nature and culture. So um, it's quite a nice mix. You know, it's not just it's not all about climbing mountains. Um, and there's a, a very nice uh, environmental um, uh, angle to it as well. Right, because I, I did a, a summer season in Chamonix in 1996, and they had a, uh, a like a premiere or avant premiere of a, a Mike Lee movie called Secrets and Lies uh, there, and they actually had one of the actresses uh, who turned up. I think her name is Marianne Baptiste. I don't know if a listener or you have seen this film, and I'm pretty sure that that was part of the Chamonix Film Festival at the time? Maybe it's kind of changed a bit over the years. Well, there have been previous film festivals. Um, and then um, there was the Chamonix Adventure Festival, which was run by Katie Moore for several years. Um, and, um, uh, and with a very close partnership with Kendall, um, with Kendall Mountain Festival as well. Um, and now, and then that came to an end. And so last year, this uh, new film festival saw the day. But um, so there are a lot of uh, athletes, obviously, but also authors uh, and filmmakers. Um, so a lot of conferences and, um, and guest invites, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, you know, when I was out in Chamonix, I um I took the Montevere train. Actually, took it down rather than up. And I'm aware there's a lot of work uh, already underway because I saw all the kind of uh, you know cranes up there. I think they're pro probably digging out the foundations. But I wonder if you could, you know, this is a, a long project. I wondered if you could just give us an insight into what's going on at Montevere. How are they changing things around there? Yeah, this is a major project. Uh, about, uh, I think it's a 56 million um, euro project at the moment, but it's in, in two parts. One is to change the um, location of the uh, gondola lift, which goes down from the Montanvert um, station down onto the glacier, because that lift um, has, well, they've had to add a staircase from the bottom of the lift and every year they have to add more more stairs so we're now at 500 steps down uh, once you've taken the lift um and if you imagine that when the lift opened which was in about 19 uh, i think it was about 1988 um the lift came right down onto the glacier so that just illustrates the um uh the the how much um how much mass the glacier has lost uh, so 
that lift will be dismantled and there's a new lift um, which is being built uh, higher up uh, so it's right at the end of the uh, Mont station and then it will go uh, up and along the glacier to a, a point about um, I think it's about 700 meters further sort of up glacier uh, and that open um, in uh, 2023 so that will mean getting off the glacier when you ski the Valley Blanche uh, will be much easier because <laughs> you won't have to negotiate all the steps um, and it also means that people wanting to get down to the glacier to visit the um, ice grotto uh, can do it without absolutely uh, wearing themselves out. Yeah I mean it is a tremendous uh, shame that this is the reason for it that the glacier you know, it has, uh, has, has melted and, and become lower. And, you know, I first uh, skied the Valet Blanche in about 1983 or 84, something like that. So yeah, evidently that lift wasn't there. But I have seen a graphic, which I'll share in the show notes at the time. There were like three steps <laughs> to get back up. And now there's 500, uh, sadly. But I think as part of the uh, new development there at Montenvere, there's also going to be like an environmental centre, so you can find out yeah. more about how climate change is affecting the mountains? Absolutely. There's going to be a glacier and interpretation centre, they call it, which will be very much uh, about, but not just focusing on on the Medeclass. It will be more of a, um, uh, uh, well, a global experience. Um, and um, also talking about meteorological conditions. And that will open in um, 2024. I certainly recommend uh, going up there. And I, you know, I always uh, try and get up to Montevideo when I'm around in the summer. But I'm also aware that there's work going on on one of the other lifts. Uh, and if, if my pronunciation is correct, I'm going to say it's the Charamayon. Is that right? Charamayon. There you Charamayon. go. Close, close enough. That's down towards the Latour end, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and that's it. At the northern end of the Chamonix Valley, um, and it's the lift that accesses the Le Tour Balm ski area. Um, and so uh, they're uh, replacing that gondola lift, um, which will open in December 2023. So, so the capacity has been increased over twofold. It'll be a 10 seater gondola um, for uh, 10. Uh, yeah, ten-seater gondola, but um, uh, transporting two thousand two hundred people an hour. So sure, but so the work's going on this summer now, but it's not opening for another uh, more than a year. Uh, hence, will it still be operating next winter then? Oh, sorry, um, no, it's opening this winter. I beg your pardon. Oh, December twenty-three. Sorry, yeah. December 2022. That all the years blend together. Now. Right, that makes sense now. Yes, so they're doing the work now. Yeah, and it's going to open for this winter. Cool, that's yeah. excellent. So there's always, you know, a lot of investment going on in the lift system in uh, Chamonix. And, uh, yeah, look forward to uh, to getting out there, hopefully, and trying that one. That's brilliant, Claire. Thanks for that uh, uh, update. Uh, You're welcome. Sally, I'm going to move on to uh, you now. Lots of lots of guests on the uh, show today. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was I think you flagged this up, although my daughter is watching Love Island every day uh, at the moment, uh, that actually the uh, contestants on Love Island, and this is probably the only time ever I'm going to mention uh, Love Island on the podcast, but they've all been equipped uh, with clothing from uh, eBay. And I saw a quote from the head of fashion buying at eBay, someone called Gemma Tad, who said that Love Island has a power to change consumers' perceptions around secondhand clothes. And, you know, I genuinely hope it does. But I wanted to speak to you, uh, uh, Sally, because your business, Hooski, is all about pre-love clothes, right? That's totally correct. It was set up um, to fill the market because there was no specific website to buy and sell pre-love clothes in a, in a peer-to-peer format. Um, and we really celebrated the whole Love Island thing. Personally, I'd like to see Love Love Mountains, which will be more yeah, about sustainability and buying the right clothes. But we might get there one day. Who knows? But hopefully not bikini clad. Uh, but so the, the website itself then is whoski.com. And you're essentially saying, I mean, would it be right if, if, I, if I said it's a kind of eBay specifically for snow sport items? That's absolutely, it's not an auction site and it is right. all pre-loved secondhand gear. So um, you can upload your ski wear, ski clothes, um, you put the price on and then someone else can purchase it. 
And what's sustainable about it, some websites will ask you to post the gear in. They will check the gear. If they don't like it, they'll post it back to you. Or if they do like it, they'll keep it, photograph it. But it then goes on this really long journey to the end user. What the benefit of our site is, is you post your item and then you send it directly to uh, the people who purchased it. And do you, just that, you know, out of interest, then, do you think that, you know, this decision by Love Island, evidently it's getting, you know, a lot of uh, exposure, the TV programme itself. I don't know how many people watching it are aware that they have a bunch of uh, pre-loved clothes. But using my daughter as an example, she's often on a, on a uh, uh, app called Vinted, you know, buying yeah. and selling clothes on there, which is also, uh, uh, you know, pre-loved items, I think. That's right. I mean, Gen, Gen Z, Gen X, that they are really into purchasing pre-loved. Um, 60% of them will do it. Unlike um, people who are over 30, it's around 30% will consider it. So it's a very different statistic. Um, they're really into the environment. I think we all know about tortoises eating plastic straws, but recently ski wear was found in Africa um, and fashion designers there are putting their hands up going, what are you doing? You can't send this stuff. It doesn't degrade. It lasts for 200 years. The materials are, are really, really awkward to recycle. So there are companies doing the right thing, trying to make more sustainable gear, but the best thing we can all do is continue to keep our ski wear in the, the circle of wearing it and give it to someone else as well. And we've just partnered with Hallsbury, who are a school ski trip provider, because they realise, as many agents do now realise, it's students, school children are actually now demanding it from their parents saying, don't get us new, we can do secondhand for the week. I mean, when I, when I first skied, when I was at school, I had to rent an outfit. I, it was quite an awful outfit, I have to say. It didn't fit at all. Um, but I think it might be quite trendy now because what we're seeing is also in terms of a fashion statement, people want day glow again. There's very much an 80s, 90s look. So if you've got that in your wardrobes, get it out, sell it because students love it. No, that's true enough. I mean, I remember when I was involved with the British University's uh, uh, ski championships uh, when we were sponsoring it as part of Natives, that, that, you know, the onesies, you know, are incredibly uh, popular. If you can come up with those and the, the brighter neon uh, they are, they're always going, well, I'm going to say they're always going through uh, a revival, but definitely uh, at the moment. But, you know, one of my favourite tops ever was a, an M&S uh, uh, jumper that had, it was a ski jumper that had a kind of rainbow stripes in it. I'd love to have that now. That would be right on trend. <laughs> I seem to remember CNA sold a similar one as well. It, it we wasn't M&S. It was CNA. That's yeah. It was CNA. And I, I, I think we all wanted that jumper. Yeah, it was it was a great jumper. And I think what what's, what's good about pre-loved is you will find different things on there. I think... We're also finding the family markets are finding it really useful. And um, a lot of our customers were men towards the end of it, a bit last minute towards Easter, who suddenly panicked when they realised that they didn't have any kids' ski gear. They came onto our website and purchased a whole load of stuff to go away. And I think that it's gone away. Gone are the days of when people sort of look down on secondhand. It's great to have secondhand. It's great to have pre-loved. Because of the internet, we can see the quality of it. We can ask those questions. And it's a it's a really strong community. I mean, we've just joined Reaction. You've had Gavin on um, from One Tree on a Time, uh, Time on this before. And there's a whole load of partners who are really trying to push the whole ski green agenda. Um, so I think it's a really interesting time. Two years ago, when we first started talking to people, people were not interested. And, and things like Love Island, things about making stuff, doing things, there is a total change in consumer behaviour and the ski industry has to keep up. And I think I think we're getting there. Um, and I think the next couple of years we'll see some big changes. And I think what the resorts are doing uh, is getting a lot better. I think travel, we need to work on that. But if we can get the clothes right, um, the fashion industry is the third um, biggest polluter in the world. And ski gear is part of that problem. So let's see what we can do to make it easier for everybody. Cool. Well, and that is really interesting, uh, Sally. Thanks very much for that. And I guess, listener, if you'd like to uh, have a look and see what's available, uh, go along to uh, whoski.com and you'll be able to do that there. Now, I'm just actually going to drop something in that is not on our uh, provisional uh, running order. Because yesterday, 
I ended up uh, doing a short interview with a Swedish chap called Pa Johan Astrand, and I probably pronounced that uh, wrong, but he his um, adventure was brought to my attention by Protect Our Winters. He is currently cycling 3,000 kilometers from Sweden uh, to Italy to raise awareness of uh, climate change. So let's have a, a little listen to that interview. I wanted to speak to you because recently I was contacted by Protect Our Winters, who told me about an incredible bike ride that you're doing. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and why uh, the bike ride and why you've decided to do it. The ride, uh, has kind of been a, uh, a dream that I've had for a couple of years, let's say. So a lot of planning. The thing was, um, it was my, my dream to join up uh, a place where I go every summer. I have been doing that for the more than 50 years nearly. And, and uh, it, it is a paradise regarding cross-country skiing, snow, uh, and a lot of sports and stuff like that. So a lot of athletes, but also a lot of outdoor fans like myself, Falun. And I wanted to join that place with another place where I even go even more because I live down there in Italy since 30, more, 30 years or whatever, 25. So, and that is Monte Rosa. So that's a ski resort, but a really nice one for free ride and let's say a little less touristic than many others. Yeah, I've actually, I've been to Alanya and uh, skied in uh, Monterosa and I can back that up. Such a great free ride ski area. Uh, that's right, that's right. So, but even there, if you are, if you are there and in fact, I mean, during, if you look at the last, say 50 years more, you can really see how much it has changed because when my parents took me first time there, there were summer skiing up there. Two ski lifts and you went all the ride up with the Funivia. That Funivia is closed and then they built a new one now. But, but uh, you skied in the summer. You could, right. just, you could just dream about that now. It doesn't exist anymore. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, you, go, you, you go up and you walk or whatever. And you walk with the seal skins up there. But, but there is no uh, summer skiing. Absolutely. Anyway, that glacier is going then therefore upwards in, 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 in altitude, let's say, and the snow up here in, uh, in, in Sweden is going northwards, latitude-wise, Yeah. right? So my, my dream was to connect these two places, paradises, I call them, uh, with a long ride. And I couldn't do it in wintertime because it's prohibitive, okay? okay? So it became like, uh, let's do it in the summertime when I, when I, uh, uh, can, when I could, could plan for it. And then it became like, why don't I, I was already a member of PAO, PAO Sweden. So protect our winter Sweden, uh, like a member. And then I contacted, contacted PAO Sweden and said, look, this is my dream. Do you want to uh, like join me or not, not as a sponsor, because that's not what I'm after. Huh? I, I, I wanted to be partner with them. Yeah. And they were just great. I mean, so they took on my challenge and now they, you see, they are, making public some of the things in Instagram well, and the web. That, I mean, <clears throat> that is how I found out about it <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, overall. And you yes. know, it's an incredibly long distance that you're looking to take on, isn't it? Because you're starting um, in Sweden, you're going all the way to uh, Italy. Uh, you know, how many kilometers is that? It's uh, 3,089, including this uh, Vetten Rundan, which I did yesterday uh, night. And can I can I ask then? So, how many days are you um, planning for the trip? Are you, how, many, how many how many kilometers do you anticipate cycling today? So, so this is. I mean, I uh, I plan this quite. Uh, you have to do it really meticulously. So it's in commute all my all my tracks and the daily uh, routes I have. So I do average 120 kilometer per day, and I do that three days and I rest one day. And that, that resting day, I have already booked places or they are at friends' houses. So it's a kind of a day where I can recover. I know that um, you cycle, uh, I think maybe kind of uh, seven, 8,000 kilometers per year in general. So you're pretty fit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, even more than that. But, uh, well, I never reached 10,000, but I hope to reach at least nine this year. I started by going commuting to my job, right? It was like 10 kilometers. And then more and more, you know, then it more and more. And, and uh, basically, 
now I'm up in eight, 9,000 kilometers per year. So, yeah, uh, I don't go to the job anymore with a bike, <laughs> but yeah. I, I do a lot of biking uh, outside. So that's uh, that's what I do. Well, it's very it's very impressive. And, I, you know, I, I know you you've only just started. You're still in your uh, first week, so you've got a long way uh, to go. But, um, you know, I want to wish you all the best for the uh, rest of the uh, journey. And I hope that, uh, you know, everything you're doing continues to help bring awareness uh, to the uh, the threat that, you know, the mountains have from uh, increasing climate change. Exactly. That's why I do it. And it became like this. I mean, it's my dream, but it's also to to be able to to keep this countryside and to mind you i mean i worked uh, all my life in the, with the with, or most of my life with the with the common agriculture policy so it's also it's also a nature landscape which we uh, ride through so the mountains the agriculture the forest and have it all kind of safeguard this for us and for the future for our kids and and, and whoever, so so we need to keep this. We need to rethink. One of the issues which I really got, or I, I liked power for is that you can't change everything at once, but you can do small pieces at a time. You can't be perfect directly. So let's take one step. And that's what I'm trying to do. Let's take one, each of us do something like, and that's how you reach it, yeah? That is a, a, a really good message, I think, to finish on. Uh, that is. Uh, really, that's really good. Um, yeah. uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, you can get back to your recovery now and uh, <laughs> wish, you, wish you the best. I'll put a link into the show notes where people can uh, follow you, but it's at uh, protectourwinters.eu ride hyphen four hyphen glaciers or on your Instagram. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Instagram as well, which I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks very thank much. You. Okay. Thank you very much, Ian. Bye-bye. Right. So we've been discussing like pre-love kit, but we also talk about new things as well. Now, Al, in the last episode, we talked about the uh, Vulcan uh, Deacon 72, the ski that you loved at the uh, ski test. And it provoked quite a lot of conversation on the website uh, Snowheads. Uh, someone, uh, One of the users called Grinning said, what a great conversation starter for June. Uh, another user whose username is Old Fartbag said, I listened to what Al said with interest. I don't think I've ever heard him be so enthusiastic over a ski. Ski Master said, interesting listening to Al. But we had, had a few comments I wanted to pick out, and I've shared with you already. Be interested to hear what you have to say about them. Um, Bob in CH said, is he truly independent or is he friendly with uh, the different uh, suppliers, etc.? What's the answer to that, Al? Uh, well, just talking about, I'm going to come straight to that, but I just want to apologise to listeners first off. So that, that mask there, 72, and the Deacon 77. So basically there are two skis, so the Vocal Deacon Master 72 and the Vocal Deacon 72, which replaces the current 74. So we were talking about the Deacon 72. Now that's a poplar and beach multi-layer wood core. I'd said poplar Nash, which is the master core. Totally my fault. I know exactly what the cores are because I've done loads of work around these skis. Um, but yeah, for those eagle eared out there that spotted it, well done. Well, I'm not um, sure that any, I don't know if anyone did spot that, but but what, yeah, yeah in, in terms of that question, then you know, yeah. your independence, how does that come into play? The easy answer is I'm not sure I could ever be truly independent. I've worked in skiing for 20 plus years, I've done loads of different roles. I've worked for retail, I've worked for brands, I've worked for membership organizations, all manner of things. Now, skiing in the UK is such a small, tight knit community that everybody knows each other. And, you know, some of my best friends work in skiing. So, you know, the cynic in me would go, Well, hold on, you're never going to be truly independent because you know these people. So, for me, my whole approach, and you know this, you know, you're the perfect example. I've known you for a good part of that that 20 years in the various roles that, that you've occupied in, in skiing. That's just how it is. So the main thing for me is I'm a skier. I love skiing, but being on the right kit really makes a massive difference. And I've had people help me in the years with kit information, and, and that is what I'm trying to do, give as independent as possible, expert, informed information to help people make the best decisions about their kids. Well, I think I think you do it really well. And the fact that you're so enthusiastic uh, uh, in that last uh, report about the Deacon 72, it just came across uh, so much. And you ski on a lot of skis. There was someone else who had a question. They suggested that you uh, skied it with a rental binding and that, you know, the choice of binding can affect uh, the ski. 
Now, I wondered, you know, whether that was a factor at all. What do you think about that? Uh, they, uh, I mean, the, the point is totally valid. It's not a rental binding on that ski. So, so long time ago, all skis were flat. You drilled a hole in them, screwed bindings onto them. And then when people go to rent bindings, you need to adjust it for a lot of different boot sole lengths. So you have a, a rental binding that will adjust the different lengths because the screw on system doesn't adjust so much, maybe 30, 50 mil. But about 10 years or so ago, we maybe a bit longer, we, we had system bindings where rails are mounted on the skis or created within the core of the ski. And the binding can therefore just over a massive range. And that's the same whether you go into a rental shop and get the ski or whether you buy that ski for yourself. And that is the system that the Deacon skis use. So it uses their R-Motion 2 plate which has a massive amount of adjustment on it. It's the same binding on their Race Tiger GS off the top of my head. It's the same binding that was used on the Deacon 74 last year. So the binding doesn't make a difference. Um, in terms of you know comparing ski to ski, I've done quite a bit of testing around using different bindings on skis, and it does make a difference. There are other things, servicing of a ski, construction of a ski, that can have a bigger impact, but binding can change how a ski behaves, absolutely. Right. Okay. And then another question that was brought up uh, by one of these, a bigger queue. It was really a question of 72. You know, do you think that 72 underfoot, can that be an all mountain ski or is that just a, you know, always going to be a, a, a piece ski? This is a great question. All mountain is not a perfectly defined term. So there is a massive amount of gray in ski terms. It's easiest to think of there are skis and wider skis are better in powder typically and narrower skis are better on firm snow. But then there's a massive variety in that. To help people kind of choose a ski, we have categories like piece and all mountain and free rider powder. If you go to North America, an all mountain ski might be 106 mil underfoot, so the width under the boot. If you go to Europe, an all mountain ski might be 72, 74, 78 mil. But just taking a, a step back on, on, on questions as well, I think I think you're talking before, certainly in the notes, somebody mentioned about can you tell the difference in skis, you know, with the binding, if you've got a ski with the same geometry and price point, but from a different brand or whatever, would you as a tester, can you tell the difference? And this is a this is the this is the the kind of ultimate test if you want when we are demoing and reviewing products so my classic example of this is salmon qst 99 they kept the ski exactly the same but they changed the layup inside the ski but you could really tell it and so it came out the factory off the same service machine by the same people in the factory but the slightly different layup in the ski exactly the same shape exactly the same price and you can can feel the difference in that ski so so absolutely you can but also when we look at skis take geometry as a guide so just very quickly on the head magnum ski they changed the geometry of a ski one year and kept the length the same so rationally the radius of the ski should change but head kept it quoted as the same these are just guides length on a ski if you get a 176 k2 it's different to a 176 head so, so it's worth just kind of using these just as guides. Cool. I wasn't even going to bring that one up because I knew, you know, that you would say, of course, you know, I, I don't have any doubt at all that you can tell the difference, you know, between these skis. You skied on so many before and we really do uh, enjoy listening to <clears> your uh, analysis of all of the skis. So thanks very much for that, uh, <clears throat> Al. Right, we're coming towards a close now. Uh, I enjoy all feedback about the show, so please do get in contact. You can leave reviews, comments, wherever you want to, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, social media, email. And don't forget to fill out that uh, survey. I've got a, a few comments from people since the last episode. Uh, Andrea Dalton uh, said she found uh, the section with uh, Diane Palumbo uh, from Ski World really interesting said it was a shame for English young people who want to do a season. We were talking about Brexit and those issues, but another fab episode. Uh, Bob in CH, we mentioned him before. He said he enjoyed uh, the last episode and that uh, Diane was really funny. Great work. Uh, Anon said, uh, thank you so much, Ian, for keeping going during the last two years. Your podcast have helped me more than you probably know, uh, for me at least, during challenging times. I love hearing about everything related to the mountains. Long may it continue. Well, I really appreciate that. And uh, and thank you very much. Um, also, uh, in from Ryunis uh, said, great to put a voice to Latania.co.uk. That was Toffa in the last episode. 
he says it's a fantastic website and a really good source of uh, info. Uh, keep up the good pods. So they help me feel tuned into the mountain community. So that's what we're trying to do, even in the middle of summer. Um, so you can still feel in touch with uh, skiing and the world of snow sports. Uh, you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the ski podcast uh, but for now i'd like to thank switzerland tourism uh, for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today claire thank you <laughs> uh neil thanks for having me and sally thank you very much ian and al always a pleasure thank you ian and finally listener thank you for joining us until next time goodbye Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.